The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate. It's December the 10th, 1907. In London, 300 medical students are on the march, waving placards and effigies. Waiting for them are suffragettes, trade unionists and 300 police, blocking the students' path into the Latchmere Recreation Ground in London's civil parish of Battersea. The medical student's destination? A rather unassuming statue of a little brown dog. A bronze memorial to one particular guy, yes, but also to all those animals who were dying at the hands of medical vivisectors. The statue had been commissioned by anti-vivisectionists and two feminists who'd witnessed with their own eyes the dog's suffering under the knife, but not under enough anaesthetic. The plaque below the statue is offensive to the medical students. It reads, Men and women of England, how long shall these things be? The medical students and suffragettes clash. The police pile in. There are physical assaults on all sides in one of the battles that would become known as the Brown Dog Riots. The statue doesn't last long. Medical anti-doggers vandalise it frequently. University College London's vivisectors-in-chief, Ernest Starling and William Bayliss, bring a libel case against the animal campaigners. And there are more protests by the National Anti-Vivisection Society, created by Francis Powell Cobb, who we met in episode 3. By 1910, Battersea Council has had enough. Under the cover of night, four of its workers, including the council's blacksmith, along with 120 police, remove the statue and melt it down, despite a petition of 20,000 in favour of its keeping. But the little brown dog will not be forgotten. It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation. Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges. We still have a legal system dominated by people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals. His compassion for others was, was universal. Welcome to Martin's Act at 200, a six-part audio documentary celebrating the bicentenary of the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act, the first piece of parliamentary legislation anywhere in the world to protect animals. I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, author and activist, and I'll be your guide on this journey through the history of animal protection, exploring the efforts to create a world in which animals have freedoms to flourish. In this episode, we'll look at how the ideas about animals and food unfolded over the 19th and 20th centuries in Britain and the United States. We'll return to the brown dog affair, as it came to be known, later, when we'll talk to author Paula Owen, who wrote a novel about it. But first, I want to consider how ideas of animal protection, vegetarianism and even veganism, although it wasn't called that, had gained such ground that by 1906 there were established movements to tackle what we would today call single-issue campaigns. What else was happening alongside the 1822 Martins Act that created a wave of romantic feeling, romantic with a capital R, for the well-being of animals, both human and other? So, 
Staying with the scene of gruesome medical drama, we're heading back to 1818, four years before Martin's act, and to a young woman called Mary Shelley, who's written a novel, Frankenstein. Think of it, the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands. For many people, what's kind of most interesting about Mary, or most important, is just how young she was when she wrote Frankenstein. That's Dr. Amelia Quinn, Assistant Professor of World Literatures and Environmental Humanities at the University of Amsterdam. She's written extensively about Mary and what Dr. Quinn has termed monstrous veganism. Mary Shelley was only 20 when she published Frankenstein, having run away across Europe with her husband, poet and advocate of vegetarianism, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Frankenstein is the story of a doctor who uses his medical skills to create a human being out of dead matter. I'm fascinated by the continuing influence and relevance of material from the early 19th century, Martin's Act, Frankenstein and many other texts on our current thinking about animals, food and bodies, both human and non-human. And Dr Quinn feels the same. Uh, and to have crafted this story that now is such a kind of global myth over over 200 years that it's just part of ingrained in our culture and becomes part of debates about food, GM meat, GM crops uh, and, and much more contemporary discussions about what it means to to eat what it means to be um, human. As we heard in episode one, some of the speeches given by Richard Martin and Lord Erskine, for example, in the UK Parliament between 1809 and 1822 are not only relevant today, but perhaps even more powerful and resonant than those we hear in contemporary parliaments. The same could be said of the writings of both Shelley's and about how we think of vegetarianism and veganism today. Perhaps it demonstrates how recent our current mentalities are and where they come from. Let's find out a bit more about this radical veggie couple. So Percy and Mary were very much part of radical vegetarian circles, uh, mingling, associating with reading radical writings about vegetarianism. Quinn again. Which obviously at that time was not called vegetarianism, but was referred to as natural diet by Percy Shelley, but but also went by various other names in the period. So some referred to it as Brahmanism because this was a period in which uh, influence from kind of travellers coming back from India and kind of vegetarianism in, in Brahmin circles there coming back and having an influence on British vegetarianism. Some called Pythagoreans as a reference to kind of Pythagoras and his vegetarianism. You'll recall from earlier episodes that Lewis Gompertz, one of the founding members of the RSPCA, or SPCA as it was then, was disparaged by the other meat-eating members of the council as a Pythagorean for his radical ideas about food and animals. I don't know if they ever met, but Gompertz and the Shelleys would most definitely have gotten along by the sounds of it. So Percy, I mean, his vegetarianism was, was very much connected to his political radicalism in, in other areas. Um, so he was a political radical, very much atheist, so chucked out of Oxford for his... Uh, atheist leanings and writings. Uh, he was someone who believed in free love and getting rid of kind of monogamy and marriage as another repressive institution. And so those things may seem very unconnected to vegetarianism, um, but for Percy, he kind of brought them all back to meat eating, which was seen as the cause of, of all social ills. 
Many of us today may agree. Also like many of us, Percy Shelley explored his beliefs in his creative endeavours. So he writes um, uh, this kind of long-form poem called Queen Mab uh, and attaches to that these long-form notes that are really much more kind of political polemic essay in which he, he theorises that you know, ultimately it was the meat-eating began and caused all vice on earth and that it was it, it kind of inflamed the passions of the body and so along with alcohol led to desires for tyranny, led to desires to enslave, led to disease and so that crime and evil had stemmed from this original sin. Um, and so he uses the myth of Prometheus to, to kind of allegorize that process. So the myth of Prometheus as the idea that he stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans, that fire is what was seen to make meat palatable. So he's also invested in this idea that humans are biologically, physiologically herbivorous, and that we require fire to, to make meat not disgusting, to make it palatable. So he uses similar arguments to, to Joseph Ritson to suggest that, well, if you truly think it's natural, why don't you go out and, and slaughter an ox and just kind of eat it raw? So yeah, the idea that this, this stealing of the, of the gift from the gods of fire is what causes sin. So that's Percy. But what about Mary? So Mary also obviously heavily influenced by, by Percy as her, as her husband, part of these circles too. And as people like Carol Adams have shown, this vegetarian climate very much enters into her fiction. So with Frankenstein, you have this, this monster who declares his vegetarianism, declares that he, he wants to only eat nuts and berries and live very peacefully. From my perspective, she brings Percy himself into her fictional works. So in The Last Man, it's kind of commonly understood that the character of Adrian, who's this kind of pacifist vegetarian, is meant to be a, a rendering of Shelley, Percy Shelley, that is. And so you get this kind of text, these textual rewritings of, you know, Percy himself entering into this fictional landscape also as this vegetarian character. While Percy's writings were polemical and are influential today because of other attributes, he was male, a romantic, and died an enigmatic figure at 29, Mary aged and changed. Her legacy is more complex, but perhaps more powerful, as Quinn argues, for thinking about questions of veganism, purity and politics today. For me, what's interesting about Mary's writing on vegetarianism, I mean, she gets a lot of flack, I think, about the vegetarianism this period in which they, they cast doubt and aspersions on whether she was really as vegetarian as Percy. And, and partly I think that's what's so interesting in that vegetarianism really is very ambivalent in her works, that it both simultaneously is playing into the same ideas Percy was talking about of being this original state of man as our kind of natural state that we could return to perhaps one day. And at the same time, as this kind of much more complex, difficult, ethereal state, right, that the monster is both a vegetarian pacifist and a murderous being, for me, is what makes that, that such a useful figure for thinking about veganism, because it is torn between this utopianism and the, this kind of failing and violence um, that I think are, are intentioned throughout her works. I mean, Mary herself, she comes from hardcore radical circles, right? Her father, William Godwin, as a really important political philosopher that, that Percy himself was a huge fan of. Um, it's rumoured, really, that that's where Percy first came into vegetarian circles through kind of various doctor friends of theirs. Mary Shelley, just you know, her mother, sorry, then Mary Wollstonecraft, hugely important feminist writer who died as Mary was being born. These weren't the only intellectual currents flowing around the Shelleys. 
The Quakers had long held a deep respect for animals and a disquiet at taking their lives. The Quakers rejected the notion that you could only access God through Bible or Bishop. In fact, everyone had the light of God in them. This focus on personal responsibility and God's light inside all living things influenced their views on God's creatures. It was said of early Quaker Benjamin Lay that His tender conscience would not permit him to eat any food, nor wear any garment, nor use any article which was procured at the expense of an animal life. In America, the Quaker and merchant John Woolman shared similar sentiments. To say we love God as unseen, and at the same time exercise cruelty toward the least creature moving by his life, or by life derived from him, was a contradiction in itself. Woolman also refused to ride horses or be driven in carriages, similar to Lewis Gompertz. So, the Shelleys didn't exist in a vacuum for their ideas on animals and meat-eating. You can listen to Dr Quinn's fascinating ideas in full on the homepage for this episode at chart2050.org. But we'll leave the Shelleys for now and leap forward more than a century to find those ideas still alive, although under threat of dilution. It's 1944, nearing the end of World War II, and in England, a schism has opened up in the Vegetarian Society. Formed in 1847, the Society had held vegan values of the natural diet, as inspired by the Shelleys. A century later, however, those views had been diluted, so that to be vegetarian in the 20th century meant also eating eggs and dairy. One group of six vegetarians in the English city of Leicester had become fed up with the society's drift from its radical roots. This group creates what is today the world's first vegan society. Let's meet perhaps the most well-known of the six, Donald Watson. What kind of person was he? Here's Kate Stewart, Associate Professor in Sociology at the University of East Anglia. This was a man who was clear of thought, determined and had a typewriter. That's an epitaph I wouldn't mind on my gravestone. Along with Matthew Cole... Stuart is digitising the Donald Watson archives. For Stuart, the archives don't just shed light on the birth of veganism, but what kind of people its founders were, and especially Watson. I think one of the loveliest things for me going through all of these papers was really getting a sense of of him particularly, uh, and the kind of person he was. Moving away from being the ideas of somebody and really getting a sense of this guy. Just thinking, I really like this man. I think he's complex. I think he's dryly funny, but quite doer. He's thoughtful. He, I can see how he could be a little bit curmudgeonly, maybe. But getting that lovely sense of who this guy was and thinking, yeah, you were a good human being. You were a nice human being. Donald, born in 1910, wasn't alone. His wife, Dorothy, friends Elsie Shrigley, Faye Henderson and her husband George and others all were, I imagine, knowing vegans today, lovely people. They were in favour of steering the vegetarian society back to its origins by centering animals and their experiences, not people's taste buds. The vegetarian society, set up all those years before in the wake of Martin's Act and the RSPCA and Shelley's Frankenstein, disagreed. So they split. What was it that made Donald Watson so nice then? What influenced him? One thing that I think comes through very strongly from Donald's writings in particular 
is the influence of a personal experience. That's Matthew Cole, lecturer in criminology at the Open University. So he grew up uh, in Mexborough, South Yorkshire, and one of the things that we found in the archive is um, what's described as a nature diary. There's one from 1929, um, and so for every day of the year, he's describing his experiences of the natural world around Mexborough, including his observations of all the creatures. And it's, it's these observations that I think were really important in forming his um, ideas about other animals. And that's OK, isn't it? That we don't have to get our ideas from a book or philosophers, but from being out in the world with animals? Of course, Watson's ideas evolved as a member of the Vegetarian Society and regularly reading their newsletter. However, personal experience mattered. And one of those experiences was... Witnessing his uncle uh, slaughtering a pig on um, his local farm and how this had a really profound impact on him in terms of the injustice of it, the, the suffering of it, the cruelty of it. Let's hear from Watson himself in one of the few available recordings. And I still have vivid recollections of the whole process, including all the screams, of course, which were only feet away from where this pig's companion still lived. That experience was to leave a lasting mark on Donald's thinking, and not only about animals. The thing that shocked me along with the chief impact of the whole setup, was my Uncle George, of whom I thought very highly, was part of the crew. And I suppose at that point, I decided that farms and uncles had to be reassessed. They weren't all they seemed to be on the face of it. For Watson, the humane image of farming was a sham and needed challenging. And it followed that this idyllic scene was nothing more than death row. A death row where every creature's days were numbered by the point at which it was no longer of service to human beings. The creation of the vegan society in the midst of World War II posed special challenges. Um, I think there was, and there was some stuff that we found in the archive as well, issues to do with rationing because of course it was wartime and uh, whilst vegetarians were allowed an alternative protein ration of cheese instead of meat there was nothing for vegetarians who didn't eat cheese. One of the very early kind of I guess lobbying campaign activities of this new group was writing to the um, Ministry for Food and saying, can we have a substitute nut ration instead, please, as our, as our protein? So whether that kind of practical requirement or that you know, practical need helped nudge things along a bit from just the debate around the issues to an actual kind of formation of a group to try and get something done, maybe that was a factor uh, in terms of the timing of it that made it happen. Some think that wars are the worst thing that have happened for the gains made for animals. Those gains including, for example, Martin's Act and the anti-vivisection successes. Did World War II put a stop to that? Well, it was jolly nearly a backslide. That's Richard Ryder, whom we've met in previous episodes. Former chair of the RSPCA, author and coiner of the term speciesism. For Ryder... 
War punctuates and often deflates moral concern for animals. It, it was a classic case of where wars interfere with the development of moral policy. social policy and attitudes and values. If you look at the historical sweep of things as regards animal, uh, animals, you can see that there were periods when human beings became seriously interested in the moral question of human relationship with the other animals. Uh, and then, as soon as wars broke out again, um, the discussion stopped. According to Ryder, Martin's Act in 1822 benefited from and was perhaps only possible due to the peace following the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And then after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, it all popped back again. And you had people like Richard Martin and, and uh, Lord Erskine, Thomas Lord Erskine, managed to get through the first legislation to actually protect animals. And this was the effect, very clearly, of war. As soon as a country is at war, it hasn't got time to discuss moral issues in general. And it certainly doesn't discuss moral issues affecting members of other species. This remained true a century later. And this is what happened in the 20th century. We had two great big world wars. And it took a long time to recover from that. 1960, if you like... It took until 1960 before we actually got over the combined effect of those two world wars and we began to discuss moral issues once again. We'll turn to the 1960s in the next episode. For now, thanks to Kate and Matthew for their insights into the founding of the Vegan Society, as well as where and when the term vegan was coined. To listen to more, go to their full interview at Chart 2050. So it's time to return to the start of this episode and the little brown dog. So the story is well known within the movement, but the story is not known outside of the movement, as far as I can tell. You know, people who have lived in Battersea for decades don't know the story. That's Paula Owen, environmentalist and author of the novel Little Brown Dog. What I hope with this book is that it gives the true story fresh oxygen, so it brings it to a wider... That's why I fictionalised. I wanted to bring something different to the tale, to bring a, a new audience to it. So, what is the story? Without giving too much away... They were two highly educated Swedish women. Real names, Lizzie Lindaf Hagby and Lisa Schartow. I hope I pronounced that correctly. The women had known each other since childhood and came from distinguished families. Lindaf Hagby had attended Cheltenham Ladies College in England. They would come to Britain, to, to London, to find out more about what was going on. There was a lot of it going on in, in Edwardian times. So we're talking about kind of the first decade of the uh, 20th century. And of course, at that time, remember, in the UK, we didn't have, uh, women didn't have the vote. Women didn't have a voice. Women were still pretty much property of their fathers and then their husbands. In 1900 the women visited the Pasteur Institute in Paris, where they were shocked by rooms full of caged animals for cruel experiments. Back in Sweden, the pair founded the Anti-Vivisection Society. As Owen notes, women, even rich, well-connected women, had few rights, so to gain medical training to help their campaigning, in 1902, the women enrolled at the London School of Medicine for Women. This was a vivisection-free space, 
but had visiting arrangements with other colleges. Afhagby and Chartel attended 100 lectures and medical demonstrations at King's and University College London, including 50 experiments on live animals, all conducted by men, of course. It's the women that are speaking out for animals and animal welfare and animal rights, even in those days. So it's the voiceless speaking for the voiceless. So, gender was and has always been a significant element in the conflicts between those who harm and profit from animal exploitation and those who attempt to protect animals. But let's get to the little brown dog himself. In 1902, the two women attended a vivisection by Ernest Starling. And they witnessed an awful uh, live vivisection demonstration that happened at University College London's medical facility. And they were moved to write about it because I think like us all, anybody who who hears the story who is sensitive kind of is appalled by it. So they were moved to write about it in a, um, a book called The Shambles of Science. And what happened then was a, um, it was picked up by the anti-vivisection societies and activists and it became a cause celeb. And there was a court case for um, libel that turned into slander. And at the heart of the story is a simple statue that was made in memorial to that dog that they witnessed being tortured that day. According to Starling, the dog was... A small brown mongrel allied to a terrier with short roughish hair, about 14 to 15 pound in weight. I first used it in a vivisection in December 1902, when I cut open his abdomen and legated the pancreatic duct. For the next two months he lived in a cage... The dog was brought in for two more experiments. First, Starling cut the dog open again to inspect the results of previous surgery. He then handed the dog over to fellow surgeon William Bayliss. Bayliss cut a new opening in the dog's neck and attached electrodes. The aim was to stimulate the nerves with electricity to demonstrate that salivary pressure was independent of blood pressure. The dog was then carried to the lecture theatre stretched on his back on an operating board with his legs tied to the board, head clamped and mouth muzzled. According to Bayliss, the dog had been given a morphine injection earlier in the day. The Swedish students disputed that. In their diary, they wrote, The animal exhibits all signs of intense suffering. In his struggles, he again and again lifts his body from the board and makes powerful attempts to get free. I'm sorry for how distressing this is, but we know that dogs are still, for example, here in the UK, bred for use in experimentation. The point of learning from the past, I think, is to take from it what we can so that we can change the present. The brown dog affair didn't pivot around the Swedish activist's book, Their Shambles of Science, in which they documented their testimony, though that did cause great disruption and provocation. For example, The chapter in which the women described the vivisection was entitled Fun, in reference to the laughter that issued from the other medical students at Starling and Bayliss' witty commentary. Rather, the controversy stays with us today because of the statue and its power to represent and memorialise identity. In recent times, there's been considerable cultural conflict around statues in the UK and the US. 
In the UK, slave trader Edward Colston's statue was toppled by protesters, who were then acquitted by jury of any wrongdoing. And that of arch-imperialist Cecil Rhodes has been protested in Oxford. In the US, statues of Confederate generals have been removed, revealing fractures in the body politic's ability for reconciliation and reparation. And this was the author Paul Owen's inspiration. And what struck me was how relevant a century-old story was to what was happening today in terms of the power of metal and stone statues to actually create a movement and create civil unrest and riots and violence. I was stunned by the power of the the Colston and the Rhodes statues to incite such violence because these statues mostly are kind of ignored. They they walk past, nobody knows what they are, nobody knows what they're for. But all of a sudden, some trigger has erupted a whole movement against them. And I think the statues are so important. The activism and the statue did change things. In 1906, the UK government appointed the Second Royal Commission on Vivisection. It recommended an increase in the number of full-time inspectors, just from two to four though, and restrictions on the use of curare, a poison used to immobilise animals. The commission agreed that animals should be adequately anaesthetised and euthanised if the pain was likely to continue. However, all the restrictions could be lifted if they would frustrate the object of the experiment. The commission established a committee to advise on matters related to the Cruelty to Animals Act and that became the Animals Scientific Procedures Act in 1986, which shows that influences of the early 20th century are still impacting our laws today. In 1906, Anna Louisa Woodward, founder of the World League Against Vivisection, raised £120 for the bronze statue of the dog. At the time, Battersea was a hotbed of radicalism, closely associated with the anti-vivisection movement. The statue was unveiled on the 15th of September in front of a large crowd with speakers including the vegetarian and socialist playwright George Bernard Shaw. As we've seen, riots ensued. Medical student William Howard Lister led a group across the Thames to attack the statue. The students were fined £5 in court. Women's suffrage meetings were then invaded, chairs and tables smashed. The rioting reached its height on the 10th of December when those 300 medical students tried to pull the memorial down. But before dawn on the 10th of March 1910, Battersea Council then removed it. In 1985, 75 years later, a new memorial was unveiled. The British Medical Journal published an editorial. A new anti-vivisectionist libelous statue at Battersea ran the headline. Seven years later, this new statue was moved into storage by Battersea Park's owners. Anti-vivisectionists campaigned for its return. It was reinstated in 1994, but in a more secluded spot. Even here, the new statue was not universally appreciated even by animal people. Historian Hilda Keane, who we met in earlier episodes, saw the old brown dog as a radical statement, upright and bold. 
But the new one? The dog has changed from a public image of defiance to a pet, said Keane, and it was unlikely to make any vivisector uncomfortable. Keane has a critical ear for the nuances of conversation around statues. For example, she becomes exasperated when feminists pit women and animals against each other, as if both animals and women didn't have enough oppressors already, as was the case in London recently. A newspaper article appeared in October 2021, stating the number of sculptures that feature animals, almost 100, is double that of named women. And it apparently argued about the need um, to champion diversity in the capital's public spaces, which might be seen as displaying more statues or removing existing sculptures, particularly of animals. Nowhere does the article state or recognise that many animal statues in London are either made by women sculptors or represent women alongside animals. For example, Alice Draculis has a memorial in St John's Wood Churchyard, including a fox, stag, squirrel, horse and heron. And it's dedicated to her because she was treasurer of the Humanitarian League and an early supporter of the League for the Prohibition of Cruel Sports. So there's plenty to learn from exploring and understanding the history of the ways in which animals, women and others have been memorialised by statues and why we pay attention to some, perhaps, and walk past others. We're nearly at the end of this episode, but although we've been jumping around in time, I wanted to bring us chronologically to where the next episode will start, with the cruel and theatrical exploitation of animals for research. Putting up a statue didn't end experimental research on animals. It has continued and found other insidious forms. In November 22, we remembered the 75th anniversary of the killing of Laika. In 1957, the Russians sent Laika into space as the first, you know, full-size animal. That's Tony Milligan, senior researcher in the philosophy of ethics at King's College London. Yes, the same college our two Swedish activists attended in the 1900s. Tony is part of the Cosmological Visionaries Project, exploring environmental initiatives of the future. We'd sent microbes up before and it was an orbital flight and it's it's a lot of big publicity around it. This publicity was Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's plan to show off USSR military muscle during the height of the Cold War. Khrushchev wanted a space flight to launch on November the 7th, the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution. The Sputnik 2 capsule was a bit of a rush job, with fatal results. And it doesn't help for the publicity when the, the animal dies, because there's, there's, no, there's no retrieval. Now, Laika died uh, as a result of stress and overheating. If you think of a rather extreme case of leaving a dog in a car with the, all of the windows up on a really hot day, then you've got a sense of, of what's, what's going on. The Russians have been putting dogs into suborbital flights since 1951. The Americans, chimpanzees, since 1949. But Laika would be the first into orbital space. 
She was plucked from the streets of Moscow as a stray. The scientists chose a street dog since they assumed she'd have already learned to endure extreme cold and hunger. The literal translation of her name is Barker. A jealous American press called her Mutnik. But life taken off the streets was not kind to Laika. To adapt her for space and the tiny capsule, scientists kept her in progressively smaller cages for periods of up to 20 days. Laika stopped urinating and defecating. She was restless and anxious. She and the other potential dogs were placed in centrifuges to stimulate the acceleration of a rocket launch and noises of a spacecraft. Her pulse doubled. Pitying her, one of the scientists, Dr Vladimir Yadzovsky, took Laika home for a few days to play with his children. Laika was quiet and charming. I wanted to do something nice for her. She had so little time to live. Indeed, she died within a few hours of launch. Not quite the impressive show Khrushchev wanted. So they covered it up. For a period of time, the Russians put out the story that it was the oxygen supply that uh, simply ran out. And so it asphyxiated, and, which is a, a less distressing uh, way to go. But some of the... Some of the Russians later on in the 80s and the 90s who had been involved in the, the programme with, with Laika expressed regret and said, you know, it, it wasn't worth the life of the dog. And that's, that's kind of interesting, also tragic. In fact, Laika's true cause of death wasn't admitted until 2002. But as Tony Milligan says, her death is fascinating because the very public nature of a hero's death provokes interesting questions about who heroes are and how we treat them. Because here we are, we kill animals on on all sides in in truly colossal numbers, but there's something about killing them publicly in the course of a space programme that people don't like. There's something about it that is extremely negative in terms of of the optics. It doesn't look right. On the one hand, you're trying to present these as these creatures from those early programs as, as sort of hero animals uh, that are helping the, the future of all life, and at the, at the same time, you're you're letting them uh, you're, you're letting them die from uh, from overheating and extreme stress uh, because Laika did not die well, much like the little brown dog in whose company we began this episode. Please go and listen to the full interview, which blew my mind about the ways in which looking at animal ethics and space ethics together can open up new ways to think about our relationship to animals here on Earth. Because, as Tony says, if we don't want to take certain behaviours with us into space, then why on Earth do we carry on with them down here? A final word on statues. Laika has two statues. In 2008, a small monument depicting her standing on the top of a rocket was unveiled near the military research facility in Moscow. She also appears on the Monument to the Conquerors of Space. The first and only cat in space, Felicet, has a statue at the International Space University in Strasbourg. There's no statue of Ham, the first chimpanzee in space. Tony speaks about Ham too, but that's for the later episode. Ham's skeleton is held at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Maryland and the rest of his remains are buried at the International Space Hall of Fame 
in New Mexico. With Leica's death, we've reached the end of the 1950s and approached the era that, as Richard Ryder said, brought us back to thinking about animals and their moral considerability. So that's where we'll pick up again in episode 5 of Martin's Act at 200. I'll hope you'll join me again. Thanks to Martin Rowe, Mia MacDonald, Ben Hunt, Eva Marie Lindahl and all those who gave their time to be interviewed for this and the other episodes of this audio documentary. If you've enjoyed listening, please share the link for subscribing, chart2050.org. Martin's Act at 200 is a production of the Culture and Animals Foundation. The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate.